Thanks be to God, who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus. For he welcomed our appeal and, being very diligent, went out to you by his own choice. We have sent him with the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. And not only that, but he was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gracious gift that we are administering for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We are taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we are administering. Indeed, we are giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. We have also sent with them our brother. We have often tested him in many circumstances and found him to be diligent, and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker for you. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show them proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day. Good to see you. Uh, the people who haven't gone on vacation the first day or first weekend after school has, is out, good to see you. Second Corinthians chapter 8 is where we are today talking about some practical lessons of common sense leadership. These are important because they say everything rises and falls on leadership. It's especially important because no matter who you are, you lead. Leadership isn't just something that is done by the executive. You don't just have to be the coach or the owner. If you have influence, you lead. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he calls you to be a disciple, you lead. John Maxwell, I think, put it well when he said, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, shows the way. I think that's mostly true. The only problem with that is that Jesus said we also live in a world where sometimes the blind lead the blind. So sometimes people go the way and show the way even though they don't know the way and it leads people into a ditch. Reminds me of the line from comedian Dave Barry. He said, when trouble arises and things look bad, there's always one individual who perceives a solution is willing to take command. Very often, that person is crazy. It's true. You ever follow somebody who wants to lead, but they aren't ready to lead? Second Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul shares with us some qualities of a leader worth following. And since this is Father's Day, these are some good qualities for us to apply to ourselves as dads as well. The backstory here is that Paul is on his second what we call missionary journey. He was at these churches a couple of years ago, churches, let's say, in western Turkey, modern Turkey and Greece, and started these churches. And now he's going back for a couple of reasons. First, he's encouraging and teaching them. Second, he's raising an offering to take back to the church in Jerusalem because there's a famine in Judea. And the church in Jerusalem is the church that really started these churches. And so they're saying, hey, let's help out those people who first helped us. The second reason, though, or, or the, the, the one we, um, when we read earlier in the, in the eighth chapter, Paul then talks about this offering that he's collecting, and he challenges them to be generous. 
In the second part of the chapter that you just had read for you, Paul shares how he is going to administrate, how he's going to oversee the, the, the collection and distribution of this offering. William Barclay, one commentator, said the same Paul who could write like a lyric poet and think like a theologian could, when it was necessary, act with the meticulous accuracy of a chartered accountant. In other words, Paul was a competent leader in many ways. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, he calls you to influence, to leadership. I had a leadership coach years ago that said to me, Brett, the footprints of the leader are seen all over the organization. Kind of scary thought. Dads, your footprints are seen everywhere you walk, all over your kids. Your footprint of your leadership as a disciple of Christ, those footprints are seen everywhere you go at work or whether you're with the ball team or whether you are at home or whether you are in the neighborhood. Your leadership influences everywhere you go. You can't stop your influence but you can determine how positive the influence would be. So let's take a look at Paul's lessons here so we can know the ways of Jesus and go the ways of Jesus and show the ways of Jesus by the way we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we, your Bible is true and your Holy Spirit is here. Uh, help us to have ears to hear what you would have each of us to hear, to be encouraged, to be made wise, and to put, put into action. Through Christ I pray, amen. By the way, my goal today is not for you to leave here ready to be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. There's, this is not some leadership lecture that's comprehensive but my goal is for you to be able to, if we could just take a couple of lessons and put them into action this week, maybe we could have greater influence for the name of Christ. I first of all, I want you to notice that good leaders share responsibilities. They develop other people by sharing responsibilities. That's what the Apostle Paul does here with Titus. We see in verse 16, thanks be to God who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus, for he welcomed our appeal and being very diligent went out to you by his own choice. We have sent with him the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. Paul is responsible for the gathering, the collection, the administration of this offering, but notice he doesn't do it himself. He doesn't do it alone. He shares the responsibility with Titus. And in fact, Titus shares the responsibility with somebody else, this unknown brother, kind of like the unknown crewman, I guess, in Star Trek. You sort of wonder what happened to that guy. Poor guy. You know, <laughs> later on, he's telling me, hey, I'm the brother. I'm, yeah, sure, you're the brother that Paul mentions. Anyway, I just find it, it's kind of weird. His name doesn't get mentioned. But notice, Paul here is not just sending them out to get work done. He's giving the assignment to develop them. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, in one of his books, shares the theory of 10,000 hours. His theory is that to become an expert in any field, that you have to invest 10,000 hours, and then you'll develop the skill. Now, there are people, of course, who like to argue and 
sophisticated, that's not true, they try to take him literally. I think the principle is actually valid. His principle is simply, so often we look and think people succeed because of their abilities, and we don't appreciate all the hard work that took, that was required to develop those abilities. Phil Mickelson, for instance, has been a great golfer for a couple of decades. Um, when he was grown up, he was kind of the Tiger Woods of California. They noted, I mean, he was just this golfing phenom. And Mickelson used to say it always kind of irritated him when people would look at him and say, man, he has great golfing talents. Mickelson was kind of like, well, yeah, but people don't appreciate how much time it took to develop that talent, to get it to the level that I could play as a professional. Same thing with Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods had a lot of natural ability, but part of the reason that he was so successful so young was because his dad had him playing golf when he was a toddler, practically. He was putting in his 10,000 hours when he was younger. By the way, dads, you want your kids to follow Christ and to love Christ? Are you putting in the 10,000 hours? Are you helping them as they are young Put in those 10,000 hours so that as they grow old, are you reading the Bible and sharing Bible applications? Are you praying with them and teaching them to pray? Are you bringing them to church, involving them in ministry, involving them in serving in the church with you? If our kids are going to love the Lord as he deserves to be loved, we have to put in the investment of the 10,000 hours. Well, that's what Paul does here for Titus. He's not just giving him a job. He's helping him put in his 10,000 hours to develop his God-given abilities to lead. This point is one of the reasons that I love, one of my favorite illustrations of this point is a strange little chapter in an Old Testament book called Nehemiah. One of my favorite books in the Old Testament, Nehemiah tells the story of the people of Israel about 100 years after Babylon has destroyed Jerusalem. The Assyrians have taken over. They dominate the world, the Assyrian Empire at this point. Nehemiah is kind of a right-hand man to the king. He's the cupbearer to the king. And word gets back to Nehemiah that Jerusalem has been destroyed, and it's still in rubble. You know, the walls are raised to the ground. Nobody's done anything about it, really. The animals are controlling the place, forging in and out. It's just a disaster. And when Nehemiah's brother reports that to him, he weeps. He goes into this months of prayer and fasting. And then one day he's in the presence of the king, and the king's like, Nehemiah, this is not like this. What's bothering you? And Nehemiah essentially says, the city of my God, the city of my people is wrecked, and I am wrecked with it. He just unloads to the king. And the king of Assyria says, well, would you like to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? And Nehemiah's like, I love to, yes. Okay, I'll give, you the, I'll give you the supplies and the safety to be able to do it. And so Nehemiah goes, in the second chapter of Nehemiah, that's the first chapter, the second chapter of Nehemiah, he basically goes and makes a plan. He reconnoitres, takes a look at what the situation is. The third chapter of Nehemiah is like reading the Jerusalem phone book. You know, it basically is telling the story of, of like, who did what? Like the Jones family built this part of the, the wall, and next to them, the Smiths built this part of the wall. And, you know, the Ferguson family, they built the wall by the Sheep Gate. You know, and the Andrews family, they built the ball, wall by the Dung Gate. 
I always wondered, you know, what kind of bad thing does the family do that gets assigned the dung gate? You know, give me the flower gate, please, but not the dung gate. Anyway, and so, and so I love to ask the question when you read the book, third chapter of the book of Nehemiah, why is that in there? Why waste precious parchment and ink writing a list of people's names and the work that they're doing? It's not like reading Proverbs where there's lots of wisdom. I, I think wisdom that's obvious. I, I think that there are many reasons, but the, none more important than this. Without the third chapter of Nehemiah, you would think that Nehemiah's purpose was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. In fact, that's what people often say. But Nehemiah's purpose was not to build walls. It was to build the people of Jerusalem. God uses the building of the walls of Jerusalem to rebuild His people. You can just imagine the sense of purpose the people have, that God is using them to rebuild His city, the sense of encouragement that they have as they look to God and He gives them strength, the sense of closeness to God they feel as they pray and God protects them, the sense of reward that they have. Can you imagine a couple of generations later, their kids and grandkids are looking back and saying, our parents did that part of the wall, our family did that part of the wall, our family did that part of the wall. When God gives us gifts, when God calls us to serve in the church, it's not because he's wanting to build the church primarily. It's because he's wanting to build you. And he builds you as you receive his responsibilities and do his work. That is why everybody needs to have a Titus. If you lead a small group, that's great. If you are serving in children's ministry or with teens or men's ministry or women's ministry or outreach to the homeless, that is all wonderful. Who's your Titus? You don't just exist to do the work. You exist to build a Titus, to share responsibilities so more people can experience God. We're not building the walls of Jerusalem. We're, we are still building the people of Jerusalem. Now, immediately I hear the pushback. Right, you're telling me that I just don't do the service work. I'm supposed to, like, disciple somebody as I'm serving beside me. Well, yeah, and I know it's hard. I think it's hard for several reasons, not the least of which it is going to be hard for you to do this if you have a control issue, if you're a perfectionist, if you have a problem with pride. You know, dads, it's really hard to... Teach your kids responsibility around the house if you've got control issues. You know you could garden better than they do. They, you could mow the lawn better than they, they do. You know, moms, that you could make the beds better than they do and clean the rooms better than they do. And you know if you ask them to clean the table, they're going to break some dishes. And, and you know that they're not going to get enough dishwasher, dish, dishes in the dishwasher like you can. If you're a perfectionist, you're going to have a hard time. You're also going to have a hard time if you're proud. Because if you share responsibilities with other people, you're not going to get the credit. Can you imagine what it was like for Paul? First of all, had Paul had to release control. What if he assigns this to Titus, and Titus doesn't bring in as much money as, he, as Paul would have? What if Titus doesn't do as good of a job? But what if Titus does a great job? What are people going to say? They're not going to say, oh, Paul, he's a real good leader. No, they're going to say, Titus. Man, he's a good leader. Well, he did a great job, didn't he? One of the things I like to do is to um, 
develop preachers and share responsibilities. But it's humbling sometimes. Several years ago, many years ago, I preached a sermon on stewardship, and I used an illustration that I borrowed from a friend. And the illustration essentially was all fries are God's fries. It was a long illustration. It was a funny illustration. It was a brilliant illustration. One of the finest illustrations ever in the face of humanity. Um, Then a few years later, Patrick Dennis preached a sermon on stewardship. And he shared an illustration, except his illustration was not all fries or God's fries. He used Skittles. And if you ever heard, Patrick shared the Skittles illustration. He shared it a couple of weeks ago in his message. All Skittles are God's Skittles. Can I tell you the number of people who came up to me after, who talked to me after Patrick preached? It's like, that Skittles illustration was so good. I've never heard an illustration like that. So I mean, I'll never forget the Skittles illustration. And I just wanted to die. What about the fries illustration? I shared that years ago. You know, if you share responsibilities, if you let other people get developed, other people can get the credit. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Somebody said, it is amazing how much can get done when nobody cares who gets the credit. It is amazing how much can be accomplished in the church when everybody just wants God to be glorified. And we don't care who gets the credit because after all, there's only room for God to be glorified in this universe anyway. No room for glory for any of us in reality. But if you don't develop other people, you will wear out. If you don't share the load, you'll be exhausted. Boyle's Law says, if gone unchecked, work will flow to the competent person until he submerges. So who's your Titus? Who are you raising? Who's who's walking along with you? You're sharing responsibility so so they can get their 10,000 hours in so the work can expand and you won't be exhausted. This week in my devotions, I'm going to share with you the example of Moses on this. I think the, one of the finest examples that you'll find in all history, not just in all the Bible. But it's important because the most important question that we need to ask is not, what are my giftedness? What's my giftedness? The more important question is, what is the best way for me to love? How can I love the church? How can I serve the church most effectively in, in a way that most honors God and most loves people? It's one of the reasons that I've uh, focused at my ministry as I have. There's a lot of stuff that I would like to do um, that, um, that I have to release. When I was in college, I heard John MacArthur say what determined his priorities. John MacArthur is a preacher of a large church in California. I think he's been preaching for something like 50 years. I'm not sure. It just seems like I thought John MacArthur was old in the, in the 80s, you know, but he's still out there doing it. What has given him success and longevity? He said he was one time asked, how do you say no to all the requests that people are demanding of your time? He answered, I had to make a decision to determine how I would tell my people that I love them. I could call them each on the phone every week and tell them I care about you. I could visit each in their homes over the years and say, I love you. But I determined that I would tell people that I love them by dedicating myself to the sacrificial study of the Word of God so that when they come to church on Sunday morning, I have something good to feed them. That priority has 
been a determining factor on my priorities for 30 years. How can I serve the body of Christ best? And I think that God has, I, I pray that God has honored that. That's what Paul does. That's what Titus does. He develops others, shares ministry. Second quality of leadership that we see in Paul is that he chooses his team wisely. Is there a more important responsibility that we have as leaders? Who's on the, the team? How do you choose them? Many of you remember Phil Ling. He's spoken here once or twice a year for the last several years. Um, <laughs> I, when I introduce Phil, I like to say he started a church in Seattle years ago, had 839 people the first Sunday, and it was their lowest attendance in history. They always had low, higher attendance than that. He's quite a leader. When he was in Seattle, uh, he also had a radio show. He said one of the people that he interviewed on the radio show was the CEO of Nordstrom. I guess Nordstrom was headquartered in, in Seattle, and Nordstrom is known for their customer service. And so he asked the CEO about the customer service manual they have. It must be a thick customer service manual. CEO said, no, we don't have a customer service manual. Basically said, we are ruthless about hiring people who already have a heart and a wisdom for customer service, and then we tell them, go use your best judgment. Wise leaders know how to look for the right characteristics for the people on their team, or at least the rough characteristics so they can be developed. These characteristics are good for the leader to develop. They're good for dads to develop. Four characteristics. I, we talk about the four C's. I teach this to our church planters all the time. The first C is calling. Titus was clearly called to this ministry. Again, verse 16, Paul says, Thanks be to God who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus. Titus has a heart for this. God called Titus. Paul called Titus. It's important, by the way, um, to differentiate, to clarify this. Sometimes people think they're called, except nobody's calling them. I've known church planters that I'm called to plant a church. The problem is nobody wants them to plant a church, you know. I'm called for this leader. I ought to be this leader. And the problem is nobody's agreeing with you, okay. Um, Titus was called, and it was affirmed by spiritual leaders. Second quality was compatibility. Again, verse 16, thanks be to God who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus for he welcomed our appeal and being very diligent, went out to you by his own choice. I would define compatibility two ways. I'll deal with one today, deal with another in a devotional. The first definition for compatibility I would use is the car in the parking lot test. When you see somebody's car in the parking lot, how does it make you feel? Does it make you feel like, oh, I'm so, does it give you energy? Or do you go, huh? Does it drain you of energy? The car in the parking lot test here for Titus, Paul thinks of Titus and what's he say? Thanks be to God. The second, um, the, the second compatibility test is compatibility with vision, with mission. Is there alignment on that? But ask yourself, are you the kind of person who's compatible? Do you bring joy or do you drain energy? Jim Collins, who wrote Good, Great, and Built Last, wrote, when people aren't having any fun, they seldom produce good work. Encourage exuberance. 
Get rid of sad dogs that spread gloom. Isn't that a great picture? Get rid of sad dogs that spread gloom. Now, if you listen to Jim Collins, you get the idea that you ought to fire the person the first time you think about firing the person. I think you need to give people time. But he goes on to say, if the work you are doing matters, you can't afford people who spread gloom. Isn't that good? Think about the people on your team. Think about the Cardinal parking lot test. Think about the kind of person you are. The third C is character. This is the one that's most important. Verse 22, Paul said, We have also sent with them our brother. We have often tested him in many circumstances and found him to be diligent and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. Tested character. I like that. We have often tested him in many circumstances and found him to be trustworthy. Character. Joe Gibbs chose based on character. Some of you remember Joe Gibbs. That's when we all used to like Redskins football. Um, Joe Gibbs used to say um, when he hired, he hired dedication over talent. Talent gets attention. Dedication, character wins championships, builds teams. Think about that how, that, how that works out in the Bible. Samson is one of the most talented people in the Old Testament. Flamboyant, energetic. I mean, he is a guy who is a movie waiting to be made. On the other hand, when we run into Joseph, he's just a teenager. Sure, he's had some dreams, but nobody listens to him. He's sold into slavery. Goes sent to prison, not very impressive. But notice how their stories end. Samson, the great talent, dies blind and ashamed. He had great talent, but no character. Joseph, on the other hand, is exalted to the second most powerful position in the world, in Egypt at that time, because he served in obscurity. He had character when nobody else was looking. Humble yourself before the Lord, the Bible says, and He will exalt you. Gifted people are talented enough to exalt themselves. So many people today are working to create a brand for themselves. Gifted people, talented people can do that. Character people let God build them up. And God is exalted because of they, they serve with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Again, Jim Collins in Good to Great talks about level five leaders, the best possible leader you can be. He says they have two things, personal humility and indomitable will. They're incredibly ambitious but their ambition is first and foremost for the cause, for the organization and its purpose, not for themselves. You don't happen to have ever worked with anybody who has a lot of ability and they're really personally ambitious for themselves, have you? I talk to people who work in the government or work in the military all the time and they just say it is like people will work to undermine you because they just want to advance their own career. Those kinds of people may get a level of success, but it'll be limited. It'll be, there'll be a cap on it. 
He goes on to say, while, while level five leaders can come in many personality packages, they are often self-effacing, quiet, reserved, and even shy. Read unimpressive. They're not the Samsons. They're the Josephs. But the result is they have a character that will endure. Talent people who rely on their abilities burn fast. Character people you often don't know. It's one of the reasons I so admire Elmer Towns. Elmer Towns is one of two people that helped start Liberty University, but most people don't know his name. Some of you remember when he spoke here a couple of years ago, and um, before he spoke, uh, he was signing one of his books for me, and he said, Brett, he was like 86 years old at the time, he said, Brett, um, when I turned 80, I prayed to God that he would make my 80s my most fruitful decade ever. He said, I'm on a pace to publish more books in my 80s than I have in any other decade in my life. Nobody knows his name, but he's just serving faithfully, and he's endured. How are you developing your character? The final C is competency. Henry Ford asked the, says, the question who ought to be the boss is like asking who ought to sing tenor in the quartet. Obviously, the one who can sing tenor. Who ought to be the leader? People who can lead. Who ought to serve where they ought to serve? People have those giftedness, that giftedness, that competency. Titus certainly had a competency here. He had a mentality of a leader. He says, Paul says he has his heart for you. Um, he has a, the self-starter of the leader. He went by his own choice. And so Paul could choose him. Here's the one point. Lots can be said about competency. It's the one that everybody focuses on the most. So let me say this. The place to develop competency is right where you are serving. Right where you are serving humbly. Verse 23, as for Titus, he is my partner and my co-worker. They've been working together, although most people aren't aware. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the church, the glory of Christ. Indra Nooy received word that she was going to be the next CEO of PepsiCo. She said she could not wait to get back home and to tell her parents. Her parents still lived with her at the time. She got there. She knocked on the door. She said, Mom, her, her, mom came, her mother came to the door, said, Mom, I've got news for you. Her mom said, well, that's great. Before you tell me the news, go get some milk. She thought, it's 10 o'clock at night. Why should I get some milk? But you don't argue with your mom, she thought. So she went out and she got some milk. She said when she came back, she sort of banged the milk on the countertop, and I said, Mom, I had big news for you. I've, been a, I've just been appointed president of PepsiCo, and all you care about is this milk. She said her mom just looked at her and said, What are you talking about? When you walk in that door, just leave that crown in the garage. Isn't that a great line? She says, Because... You are the wife, the daughter, the daughter-in-law, the mother of the kids, and that's all I want to talk about. Anything else, just leave in the garage. Don't even try that one on me anymore. <laughs> that great? I heard that story, and I thought, is it any wonder she became a great leader? Because she was taught 
to serve where she lived, in the home. She had a mom who taught her to lead by serving. Remember, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And he was the greatest leader of all. Called, compatible, character, competent. And God got the glory. Final leadership lesson from Paul is that leaders welcome accountability. Leaders welcome voluntary accountability. Notice verse 19. Titus was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gracious gift that we are administering for the glory of the Lord himself to show our eagerness to help. We are taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we are administering. Isn't that interesting? Paul is the apostle, the starter of these churches. He could have said, hey, I'm going to take care of this. Don't question me. But he says, no, we took precautions. We were concerned that no one be critical of how we're handling this. Accountability is just being willing to be responsible and to give account for what you do. It is so practical, voluntary accountability. It's the convenience store worker who offers good customer service even though nobody else will see and he's having a bad day. Healthy accountability is the Christian who shows up to work on time, gives eight hours work for eight hours pay, meets deadlines with a good attitude for the glory of God. Because you have a sense of accountability to God and you want to do best for your business. I love this picture of accountability. This Wendy's worker, according to this, what happened, it's pouring rain outside and there was this older man who was needing to get back out to his car and what's this guy do with a sense of accountability? I, I want to do the best that I can as an employee. I want to bet, maybe I don't know if he's a Christian or not. But he goes, and there's no umbrella around, so he goes outside and finds a table umbrella and uses that to accompany the elderly man to his car. Vulner, voluntary accountability. Consider Pom Pom Pearl Weaver. She's an 89-year-old Arby's employee who made the local news because of her passion to make people feel at home. The article said, whenever anybody, young or old alike, steps up to the counter, Weaver waves a blue and white pom-pom and chirps, hi everybody, welcome to Arby's. She's fantastic, the store manager said. She's our mascot. If she's off for a week, people ask where she is. Isn't that great? Vulnerable, voluntary accountability. I thought it was interesting that she attributed her attitude to her upbringing. She said, as, of, as one of 11 children, she said there was always plenty to do. She learned how to take responsibility and to be accountable and to do the best for Arby's by serving in the home. Dads, moms. When I think of, when I saw pom-pom pearl weaver. I thought of our own pom-pom pearl weaver, Jason Alexander. Isn't that great? Jason and his funny hat. Nobody told Jason to wear those funny hats. Nobody, you know, why is he doing it? He, said, he just wants people to feel welcome. He wants people, when they show up, just to smile before they even come to this place the first time. Voluntary accountability. Because he wants what's best for the glory of God and the benefit of new life as well. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8.21 says, Indeed, we are giving careful thought to what, 
careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. Voluntary accountability. Dads, we're accountable, aren't we? We're being watched all the time. It's kind of scary. I thought about Rod, Rodney At- Atkins' song recently. Um, Rodney Atkins wrote this song years ago about driving his truck and his son is in the back and he has, his son has his Happy Meal in his lap and he slams on the brake and the Happy Meal goes, goes all over his boy. He says, well, then my four-year-old said a four-letter word. It started with S and I was concerned. So I said, son, now where did you learn to talk like that? He said, I've been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you. I want to do everything you do. So I've been watching you. As the song goes on, he talks about how he went to the barn and got down on his knees and he prayed that God would help him be a better man. Then later that night, he put his son to bed. He said, He crawled out of bed and he got on his knees and he closed his little eyes and folded his little hands and spoke to God like he was talking to a friend. And I said, son, now, where'd you learn to pray like that? He said, I've been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you. Yeah, we're just alike. Hey, ain't we, Dad? I want to do everything you do, so I've been watching you. That's Paul's attitude when he says we are giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. You're accountable, disciple of Christ. Many of applications we could make for this, and I'll maybe make them later. But the closing one that I would make is just how do you make yourself How do you see yourself as voluntarily accountable where you are every day to everybody around you and to the glory of God? Brian Chappell writes, I have a friend who's a marathon runner. He was in a race a few years ago, and he knew it was going to be tough, particularly at the end. And knowing what happens at the end of races, how people call out encouragement, he didn't put his own name on his racing bib. He actually wrote the word Christian. He knew that when he got to the final mile, all the people would be cheering, but they wouldn't be calling out his name. They would be calling out Christian. Way to go, Christian. Go get him, Christian. Finish well, Christian. You can do it, Christian. He ran to represent the name of Christ that he bore. You run representing the name of Christ, whether you and I are aware of it all the time or not. People are watching us. They're watching our attitudes and our work ethic and our work quality and our joy and our hopefulness and truthfulness and integrity and boldness for Christ, and they're listening to our words. May they see Christ in you and me, and therefore may they know the way of Jesus and go the way of Jesus as we show the way of Jesus. Heavenly Father, help us to lead as Jesus led. Help us to lead people to you 
who to know right is to know life eternal, life that we're made for. Lord, I pray that you would plant one seed in each person right now, one action that we could take to walk closely with you, that you would build us as we build your kingdom. Through Christ we pray. Amen.